The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm Charles Thompson and I'm delighted to have been invited onto today's special edition of the show as a guest host. I'm delighted because today we're joined by one of the most respected and decorated lawyers in the world. Thomas Mesereau has been described by legal experts as a modern-day Clarence Darrow and is widely considered to be one of the greatest cross-examiners of all time. He takes time out of every year to fight at least one capital murder case in the Deep South for no money and also runs his own free legal clinic in Los Angeles. His reputation as a principled and highly skilled advocate, more concerned with justice than money, has made him the go-to lawyer for high-profile clients who don't want just another Hollywood phony. He successfully represented Mike Tyson and Robert Blake and recently made international headlines once again when he was hired to represent Death Row Records founder Marion Suge Knight. But of course he's best known for emerging victorious from the most widely covered criminal trial in world history when he exonerated Michael Jackson on 14 counts of child molestation, conspiracy and providing alcohol to a minor. Those verdicts were handed down on June 13, 2005 and he joins us here today to mark their 10th anniversary. He's agreed to stay on the line for as long as we want and to answer any question that's put to him. It's a privilege to have him here with us today. We're also joined by the MJ Cast's regular hosts, Jamin and Q. So I'll hand over to them to kick off today's proceedings. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? Great, Charles. Absolute honor to be here today on this special occasion with you all. What a fantastic opportunity for us at the MJ Cast and the fan community in general. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you going from Perth, Western Australia? Uh, it sure is. Uh, I feel quite humbled, actually. So um, I think uh, this will be a very excellent 10th episode, and especially on the 10th anniversary of Vindication Day. Jamin, I'll, I'll let you lead off, shall I? It's, uh, it's just amazing, Tom, that we can have you on the MJ cast. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to come onto the show today to discuss your work with Michael during the mid-2000s in, in defending him. Well, it's my great honor and pleasure. And uh, as I've said many times, he was <clears throat> one of the nicest, kindest people I ever met. It was a joy to represent him. Uh, I'm sorry he had to go through such pain and suffering in the process, but it was a great honor for me and a great historical event uh, for a criminal lawyer like me to be part of, and I feel very blessed that I could defend them. And we as fans, uh, we thank you very much for all of your support after the trial as well, Tom. You, I think you've been a, uh, a, a pillar of strength, not only for Michael, but often for the fan community. Um, the first question we wanted to ask you is basically just a quick one. Where did you grow up and what kind of childhood did you have? Well, I was born in West Point, New York, at the United States Military Academy. My father was a graduate of the academy, as was my uncle, and my grandfather was an honorary member of the West Point class of 1915, which was a famous West Point class that included uh, President Eisenhower and Generals Omar Bradley and Swing and other famous American generals. A lot of my upbringing was, uh, was in New Jersey, about uh, 45 minutes away from West Point. 
But the academy seemed to influence a lot of the atmosphere that I grew up in. Uh, my mother's side of the family, uh, her father was, uh, was Italian. He had an Italian restaurant in New York City, which uh, was a, a very well-known restaurant in the time. Both my grandmothers were Irish from New York. My father's father was French uh, and Irish, and he, uh, he raised my father uh, and his family in New Jersey, uh, not far from Englewood, New Jersey, where I was raised. Uh, I was very blessed to have uh, affluent circumstances in my upbringing. However, we were raised to be very strict Catholics, and uh, I attended a Catholic school, which was downtown in Englewood, New Jersey, which uh, we called a parochial school. It was very much like a public school. I had my disciplinary problems at the school, I have to admit, a lot of fighting and a lot of uh, shenanigans that uh, drove my parents <laughs> crazy. Uh, <laughs> and then I... Uh, um, I attended actually four high schools in five years. Uh, the first school, high school was in New York City. It was a, a small Jesuit school where I managed to get suspended numerous times. I switched uh, from that school to another Jesuit school for a short period of time. Then I uh, left and went to a, a Catholic high school called Bergen Catholic in New Jersey and then spent one extra year of high school because I really was uh, maturing uh, rather late. And that was at Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts. Had a wonderful year there and then uh, attended Harvard University where I graduated uh, as an undergraduate. I attended the London School of Economics for a year, obtained a master's degree, and then I went to the University of California's Hastings College of Law in San Francisco where I got my law degree. So, Tom, how did you turn from a high school rebel into a, a passionate lawyer? Well, I think it was a gradual process. My father uh, had taken uh, a law class at West Point. He always wished he had gone to law school. And he always said to me, if uh, you're not sure what you want to do with your career, consider law because it's an avenue to many different opportunities. And uh, he was absolutely correct. I graduated from law school and wasn't quite sure where I fit into the profession. So I started with a big civil litigation law firm in Washington, D.C a firm that was uh, highly recognized uh, around the country as a top civil firm. And they represented a lot of corporations, energy companies, public utilities. Uh, I spent about a year there. I then was a prosecutor in Southern California, where I was very much a fish out of water. It was just not for me. I then uh, got a very unique job as assistant to the president of a uh, oil company subsidiary, where I was running around the country just interviewing lawyers, supervising what they did, trying to put out administrative and political and legal fires, you know, uh, of various types. I then joined a small law firm that did mostly civil work. I did transactional and transactional work and civil litigation, but gradually began to realize the courtroom and civil rights and defending people who are up against it uh, was really my calling. Everything else interested me for a while. Then the question would be, where can I find passion? Because I've always believed that uh, a passion for what you do is the best way of life imaginable. And I eventually found it as a trial lawyer and found it as a, uh, particularly a criminal defense lawyer. I did try civil cases as well. I began to donate my time to nonprofit organizations that helped uh, impoverished people uh, in Los Angeles. And one thing led to another. But my father was correct. A law degree does give you many options and many opportunities to try different things. I actually dropped out of law school my first year because uh, I thought of being a journalist. And I interviewed uh, with CBS and a number of newspapers. And I had a 
a rather idealistic notion that I would be a foreign correspondent and sort of sort of parachute into uh, crisis situations around the world and see them for myself and uh, get a feeling for myself as to what was going on. And I, I say that because I, I'm the kind of person that's rather skeptical of what people tell me is going on in the world. I've always thought uh, I've got to see things myself. And I think uh, good criminal lawyers are skeptics. They don't just blindly accept what the media is saying. They don't just blindly accept uh, what the public uh, portrays people as being. They have to get inside and see for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And and Tom, what were your early days as a, a lawyer like? And what were some of the earlier cases you actually tried? Well, you know, my early days were finding myself. As I say, I joined a big law firm and uh, it was a large organization with, with offices around the United States. And you know, uh, large organizations have their politics and, uh, you know, they have their ways to survive and thrive that uh, that people have to learn. And I just realized I didn't like learning those things. I didn't like politics particularly. I didn't like, you know, learning just just how to uh, how to, you know, scratch the right backs and have them scratch you and, you know, survive uh, in, in an organizational way. I was always somewhat of a loner uh, and an outsider. And uh, I had to find a way to incorporate that into my professional life. And, you know, I gradually uh, began donating a lot of time to help poor people for free. I would uh, donate time at free legal clinics, uh, mostly in the black community in Los Angeles. I'd always uh, you know, been against the death penalty for various reasons. I'd read many horrible stories about how the death penalty was administered in the Deep South in the United States. And I said to myself at one point, I'd like to I'd like to experience myself what goes on, see if these criticisms are, are correct. And I let the word out that, uh, you know, I wanted to try uh, in front of juries some death penalty cases in the South. And the, the reaction I got was, are you crazy? You're not from there. It's a different culture. You know, you will not be well received. You'll have a life in your hands. And why don't you just work on appellate work and what we call habeas petition work, which is a a version of post-conviction remedies for somebody who's been sent to death row. And I said, no, I want to try the cases. And lo and behold, uh, I got a call that uh, there was a very controversial death penalty case uh, about to be tried in Birmingham, Alabama. It was a homeless black man charged with killing a beautiful white girl uh, in a uh, very established part of Birmingham. And it was getting tremendous press uh, to white lawyers were appointed to defend uh, the person charged. They were getting some death threats on their machines. And they reached out and asked if I'd be interested. And I said I would. I flew to Birmingham and met them. And we became instant friends. And I've been doing pro bono capital murder cases now in the Deep South for the last 18 years. You ask about some of my early cases. Uh, I remember uh, one of the first pro bono cases I ever did was a civil case where a nonprofit organization was uh, going to bat for a uh, an elderly African American man in, in his late 80s. Uh, his wife had passed away, and his only asset was a small house uh, in South Central Los Angeles, which was primarily a black neighborhood. And a an individual had come to the United States from another country. He had trained a largely black female sales force to target people like this man. And uh, they went, knocked on his door and convinced him he needed to re-carpet his home. They took the cheapest carpet on the market, 
carpeted his home. They had him sign a bunch of documents he didn't understand. He, he couldn't read. And um, when he missed one payment, they started foreclosing on his house. They're about to steal the only asset this, this fellow had. And I heard about this, and I decided to join uh, the civil team that was going to defend him uh, in this case and get his house back. And we did do that. And it turned out this was a large scam going on in these poor neighborhoods where people are, were unwittingly signing documents, including trust deeds on their home, uh, to companies owned by the, uh, the same people that were, uh, you know, manufacturing the carpet and installing the carpet. And it was a big, big fraud. So I got involved in that. And then I began to just uh, appear at church clinics and counsel people, uh, whatever the problem was. And I just discovered that I had great satisfaction uh, as a lawyer and as a human being when I did this. And um, it became a major part of my existence. I went through a crisis in my mid-30s where I went through a divorce and some financial problems. And I was wrestling with this idea of, you know, is, is materialism the answer to a fulfilling life? And I realized it just was not. I had to make a difference. And I had to find an outlet for compassion for the underdog, uh, a certain passion for justice, a desire to see people treated equally uh, and not devalued because of their race or their socioeconomic status. And one thing led to another. I was at the First African Methodist Episcopal Church Free Clinic one Sunday, uh, donating my time, and uh, another lawyer there turned out to be the uh, entertainment lawyer for actor Robert Blake, who was fa very famous in the, in the United States at the time. And he was charged with murdering his wife. It was a very high-profile case. And he said to me, uh, Mr. Blake's uh, parting ways with his current lawyer. Would you like to meet him? And I said, uh, sure. And I met him and uh, became his lead lawyer and uh, was able to get him out of jail in a case where that had never happened before in California. It was a murder with special circumstances case. Nobody had ever gotten bail, which enables you to, to exit jail. In a case like that, uh, if the prosecutors objected, and uh, I was able, after a three-week televised preliminary hearing, to get him out of jail and to turn, you know, his case around in a positive way. And Michael Jackson's people, uh, including Randy Jackson, you know, Michael's brother, hmm. uh, was a friend of mine, and they were following the case very carefully. When Michael got in trouble, they started calling me, and one thing kind of led to another, and here I am. Wow. So it's actually, it's amazing that um, it was by working for free in the poor community that you ended up representing your celebrity clients. Yeah, that is an unusual yeah. route. I mean, it, it, uh, when I explain that to people, they are quite surprised. It was, you know, normally it's assumed that the route to uh, celebrity clients is uh, celebrity land itself, Hollywood. And uh, I'd had a few entertainment clients through the years, but that wasn't really uh, where the bulk of my time or efforts were being uh, spent. And you're absolutely correct. It was an unusual way to, uh, to go where I went. So the, the Michael Jackson case that you were invited into was not the first. Of course, it started in 1993 with the Geordie Chandler case that ended in a settlement how much were you aware of that case before you became personally involved in Michael Jackson's life? And what did you think of the way it was handled? Well, I was aware of it because it received a lot of press, uh, particularly in Los Angeles. And the plaintiff's lawyer in that case, Larry Feldman, who represented uh, the Chandlers, 
uh, the people who were suing Michael Jackson. He was a master at uh, using the press to pressure Michael Jackson's lawyers. And I remember driving through Los Angeles and turning on the radio and hearing his periodic statements. He would say, we're just looking for the truth. You know, we're not afraid of the truth. We're going to expose it in court. And he was doing this uh, in a very, very um, carefully thought out way to pressure Michael Jackson's lawyers to settle a case. In retrospect, he was a master at using the press to, to pressure Michael Jackson and his lawyers. I didn't know Michael at the time. I was involved in the case. And ultimately, I ended up cross-examining attorney Larry Feldman in Michael Jackson's criminal case in 2005. But it received an enormous amount of publicity. It was a, a very shocking time, uh, not just in Michael Jackson's career, but I think for the whole entertainment world, to have Michael Jackson accused of being a, a child molester was a very, very, um, you know, uh, just it, it was it was a shocking uh, event uh, in Los Angeles, uh, as well as around the world, because Michael Jackson, you know, was thought then to be one of the greatest geniuses in the history of the entertainment world. I mean, as a choreographer, as a singer, as a dancer, a genius, uh, an innovator, a revolutionary. And just so popular and so well-liked, to have allegations like this surface was utterly shocking. You know, this, this attorney was always on the radio and on TV, you know, pressuring the defense and pressuring people who cared about Michael Jackson's reputation. And unfortunately, he succeeded. You know, lawyers like Howard Weitzman, who represented Michael Jackson, for whatever reason, and I wasn't involved and I wasn't talking to any of them at the time, uh, for whatever reason entered into a settlement with the plaintiffs for a reported $20 million. That's what the reports were. And I think Michael Jackson's life was changed forever. I don't think he ever overcame the fallout from that settlement. In fact, when I, um, when I agreed to represent Michael Jackson uh, in his criminal case, I had never tried a case in Santa Barbara County where this case was filed. Santa Barbara County is a county north of Los Angeles County where I practice. And because I had never been in a courthouse in Santa Barbara County, I hired a consultant, a jury consultant, to do some research into the community, to do some testing of attitudes and put it together in, in a report to give me an idea of what people were thinking and feeling about this case. And she did that. She um, obtained a lot of data, uh, you know, correlated age and race and occupation and political preference, where, what part of town you lived, and all this data to try and come up with an idea of who in general might be a pro-defense juror, who in general might be a pro-prosecution juror. And in the process, uh, she did inform me that everybody was most bothered by that settlement in 93 that the general feeling was, if you're innocent, you don't pay this kind of money. And that turned out to be one of the main, you know, hurdles I had to overcome in getting a fair jury to look at this evidence, because people just seemed so prejudiced by, you know, that settlement. I don't think he ever got over it. I don't think his reputation ever really got over it, even though I think it was absolute nonsense. Remember, in the criminal case, because of the way the laws are written in California, in a case like this, the prosecution can bring in evidence of other uncharged similar conduct. It's called propensity evidence. 
So they tried to prove that Jordy Chandler was molested, that four other people were molested, as well as the main accuser, Mr. Arvizo. So we had to defend that case, as well as uh, a bunch of other cases all at once. And uh, fortunately, we were able to convince a jury uh, that this man was not a molester. And that, you know, these charges were bogus and all part of a pattern of people trying to just extract money from him. But getting back to that settlement, uh, I remember it constantly being on the news. I remember it constantly being quoted in ways that were designed to, to just pressure the defense to pay money. And unfortunately, the defense did. And that, that settlement document is on the Internet. You know, Michael Jackson's lawyer, Mr. Weitzman, signed it. Uh, then there was a press conference to announce it, which uh, which I believe is also on the Internet. Uh, you can also see it in David Guest's documentary, Michael Jackson, The Life of an Icon, a documentary I really like. It's a two-and-a-half-hour documentary that I think was very well done. I was in London for the red carpet uh, premiere when that documentary uh, uh, was announced, and um, I think that's very good. But, you know, that settlement just haunted him, you know, forever. When I, when I got into... Uh, his criminal case, one of the first things I did was give a press conference to announce that Michael Jackson deeply regretted following the advice he was given and, and deeply regretted settling that case, deeply regretted settling the Jason Francia case, which I knew nothing about till I got into uh, the criminal case. That was a second settlement he was told to enter into. And um, uh, I gave a statement to try and, you know, heal some of the damage uh, that was, was in the atmosphere, which was, you know, who settles these cases and pays millions of dollars if they're innocent? And I had to get the judge's permission to make an announcement that he regretted doing, uh, settling these cases, that people who were not writing the checks advised him to do so. They told him it would be in his business interest to get these cases behind him, and it was bad advice, and he wishes he had fought them till the end. That was the best I could do about those settlements going into the criminal trial. Tom, were you following the early days of this, the, the mid-2000s trial before you came involved? And if so, what were your thoughts on how it was being handled before you came on board? Well, when Neverland was raided in November of 2003 by approximately 70 Santa Barbara sheriffs, I was driving down the... Um, California coast from Big Sur uh, through Santa Barbara to Los Angeles. I had taken a about a nine or 10 day vacation. And I took it because I was feverishly preparing for the Robert Blake murder trial, which was scheduled for February of 2004. And I'd actually had my cell phone off for about a week. And I turned it on and within about 10 seconds, it was just ringing off the hook. And it was, you know, People associated with Michael Jackson kept calling me saying, would I jump on a plane to Las Vegas to, uh, to meet him, that he wanted me to defend him. And I said, look, um, uh, I'm tied up through this uh, through February because I've got to spend all my time on the Blake defense to, you know, homicide charges, which uh, could have sent him to prison for life. And uh, they would kept calling, saying, nobody says no, nobody would turn down Michael Jackson, please, you know, you got to come. He doesn't like his current lawyer, never wanted him, wants to talk to you. And I said no. Even Mr. Blake at one point heard that uh, the Jackson people were calling me, and he called me. I said, you know, look, I'm your lawyer. I'm not, I'm not grabbing another case, <laughs> you know. So that was my first 
introduction to um, uh, to, to the the world surrounding the Michael Jackson criminal case. As as it turned out, uh, we started picking a jury in the Robert Blake murder trial uh, in February. We're in the middle of jury selection, and Mr. Blake and I had a terrible disagreement over something I considered very important. Uh, we met, you know, privately with the judge, and she couldn't straighten it out. And I asked to be to be removed from the case, and I I, I was allowed to withdraw, which was highly unusual in the middle of jury selection. Judges usually don't let you do that. Uh, the chances were overwhelming that she would say no, but she said yes. I withdrew, and within, uh, I don't know, might have been a few days, Randy Jackson called me and said, uh, we've always wanted you. We don't like the current lawyers. It sounds like you're free. Would you be willing to meet him? And I said, yes, I would be. So I flew secretly to Florida. I, uh, I met Michael and Randy and some other people that were with Michael, and um, one thing led to another. But you asked how I thought things were being handled uh, as I watched things unfold on television and in the media. I thought they were being handled horribly. I thought virtually everything I saw going on in the defense of Michael Jackson I disagreed with. For example, his lawyer gave a statement where he almost threatened threatened the media and threatened other people. It was a, it was a press conference where, where Mr. Garagos, who was Michael's lawyer initially, said that if you come after Michael Jackson, we will come down on you like a ton of bricks, or words to that effect, threatening words. And I said to myself, you know, this is a, a good way to alienate the jury before it even shows up. This is a good way to make Michael Jackson look arrogant and full of himself and narcissistic. And, you know, these are empty threats. A jury is going to show you who has the upper hand and who has the power. You don't. I also saw the, uh, the Nation of Islam surrounding Michael Jackson and I felt that, uh, that, that that could alienate the local jury pool in northern Santa Barbara County, which was largely white uh, and Latino. I didn't think having the Nation of Islam up there was going to help, you know, convey any type of image that Michael Jackson was part of the community. It was almost separating him from the community where he lived and, and where, where the jury pool was going to be selected from. I thought that was wrong. I saw a meeting go on at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Uh, it was on the news, and the Beverly Hills Hotel is one of the most expensive and prestigious hotels in Los Angeles. And it was portrayed as a, a meeting of Michael Jackson's business advisors. And I saw Mr. Garagos. I saw others come in. And again, it looked to me like a very elitist, uh, very arrogant way to present Michael Jackson before his trial even started. It, it all looked like it was designed to promote the lawyers and nobody else. And I just got a very bad feeling that this was not being handled right, that you needed to uh, show respect for the community, be humble. Uh, and, you know, as I got to know Michael Jackson, I realized that's who he was, and he was uncomfortable with all of this. He just didn't know which way to turn and which advice to get. So I was very, very unimpressed with the way the Jackson defense was being handled. I was very vocal about that uh, to Randy Jackson and to Michael. And I said, I, I think this is just the wrong way to run a railroad, so to speak. This is not the way you, uh, you, you position yourself with the people who are going to show up at the courthouse that day and decide your fate. And uh, when I got into the case, I, I did not want the Nation of Islam to be very, very vocal. I don't know if you know much about the Nation of Islam in Australia, but it, it's, uh, 
It's a very controversial group that um, does a lot of uh, work in the black community, does a lot of work with former gang members and uh, uh, people who've got criminal records and does a lot to reform them as individuals, teach them discipline, teach them self-responsibility. But it's been a very controversial group since the 60s and certainly not, uh, not an image you wanted in Santa Maria, California. I didn't want his father and, and Jermaine to be going on radio and TV calling it a lynching. Uh, my, my statement to them was, you know, whether it is or it isn't, it's not helping him, you know, in the community he's going to decide his fate. And I didn't want race to be an issue. Uh, I felt it was an issue before I came in. I didn't want this arrogant, we're richer and better than everybody else to be a, a prevalent image. So I did my best to tone down everything, stay away from the media, focus on the courtroom, focus on the community, focus on Michael Jackson's humanity, his humility, his desire to bring all people together rather than divide them. And um, I guess that's the, the best answer I can give you at the moment. So, Tom, for anybody who's listening who didn't perhaps live through the trial or is not that well-versed in the trial, could you explain what the case against Michael Jackson actually was? Well, the case centered around a family, a family from East Los Angeles, uh, California, which is a poor, largely Hispanic neighborhood, a family that began to associate with Michael Jackson because they had a son who uh, was being treated for very serious cancer. And um, uh, efforts were made to reach Michael Jackson and other celebrities like Chris Tucker, uh, Jay Leno, George Lopez, uh, to get them to you know, either contribute financially or donate their time to help this young man recover, or both. The gist of the indictment was that Michael Jackson had molested the boy who uh, was recovering from cancer. And in addition, uh, there was a conspiracy charge claiming that he had falsely imprisoned their family, uh, abducted their children, committed uh, acts of extortion, which are crimes. Uh, and um, there were also allegations that he had given alcohol to this young man to essentially prepare him to be molested. And then at the end of the trial, uh, as the 10 felony count indictment involving all of what I just described was to go to the jury. The judge on his own motion, on his own initiative, added four other possible charges. They were called lesser included misdemeanor offenses. And they work like this. The last four felony counts in the 10, felony, 10 count felony indictment were counts saying that he had given alcohol to a minor for the purpose of molesting the minor. And the way the judge presented to the jury, uh, he said that if you acquit Mr. Jackson of any of these four felony counts, all of which are separate counts, each one has to be uh, ruled on, you then have the option of convicting him of a lesser included misdemeanor count, which is simply giving alcohol to an underage child, not for the purpose of molestation or any other specified purpose, just giving alcohol to an underage child. So the jury essentially uh, went not guilty six times, and then for the last four felony counts, went not guilty on the felony count, and then not guilty each time on the lesser included misdemeanor count. So they really acquitted him 14 times, 10 felony charges, four misdemeanor charges. 
And that's the gist of what the complaint was about. But as I said before, California has some very difficult laws for those who are charged with child molestation because the prosecution is permitted to introduce what is called propensity evidence, which is evidence of other uncharged or charged uh, similar offenses. So along with all the evidence uh, surrounding this particular family, the Arvizo family, they also tried to prove that he had molested five other young men, uh, including Macaulay Culkin, the famous actor, uh, including Wade Robson, who, you know, that's a whole other story. I mean, as you know, the judge in Los Angeles just threw out his civil complaint against the Jackson estate. He now claims he was molested. At the time, he was my first witness because he was such a powerful witness. I put him on the stand and he adamantly denied ever being improperly touched by Michael Jackson at any time. The feeling was if we just bombard the jury with all of this evidence, which was very time consuming, some of it repetitive. And as you know, the trial was uh, over five months that we will come out with some type of conviction that will send him to prison, perhaps for 18 years or more. Tom, earlier you mentioned that the judge added extra charges to the case. Do you think that was fair or was the judge being pro-prosecution? I think he was being pro-prosecution in the sense that I think he realized that they had had some problems in the case, problems they never anticipated. And I think he realized that they might go down. And I think he was trying to salvage something for them. Now, there is some law in California which says that, you know, a judge, you know, must consider lesser included offenses. But my feeling in this case, particularly since they never asked for these lesser included misdemeanor charges, was that he was throwing them a life raft. And the way the media was treating Michael Jackson, I can tell you, if he had been convicted of, of, of one misdemeanor of giving alcohol to an underage child, you know, every headline around the world would have said guilty even though it was a misdemeanor that uh, might not result in jail time. Uh, there was some authority that suggested you, you wouldn't get jail for just one of these misdemeanors. But, you know, they would have said guilty, 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 even though uh, the bulk of the uh, case would have been, uh, you know, an exoneration for him. But nevertheless, uh, they went not guilty on everything, and uh, we walked out of there, and he was free. Tom, why would... Oh. Why, why would the judge want to throw a life raft to the prosecution? What was his motive? I think he was pro-prosecution. He was very friendly with the lead prosecutor, Tom Snedden. He was from that county and very well liked and knew many people in the county. And I got the feeling he was trying, even though he was trying to be fair in certain ways, I also got the feeling he was trying to bail them out. And I think the greatest example of that was when the defense rested our case, uh, the prosecution then had the opportunity to put on what is called a rebuttal case. And one of the prosecutors, Mr. Zonin, showed up in court to my surprise and said, uh, we think Mr. Mesereau has raised questions about the demeanor of the Arbizo boy when he was being questioned by the police. And for that reason, we would like to play the taped interview of of." Mr. Arvizo and the police. Now, that's called hearsay evidence. That's not admissible. It's not admissible because you can't cross-examine what anybody's saying. And normally, that would never come in. But the judge, to my shock, said, uh, I agree. You can play it for the jury. Now, 
when the, when the judge made that ruling and when it was played to the jury, uh, I remember um, the media just uh, saying it was a tremendous defeat for uh, for Mr. Mesero. This is his worst nightmare. You know, they're going to lose the case because of this. And um, I didn't think so at all. I didn't want that played. But when it was, uh, I have a belief that uh, one of the things that uh, good criminal defense lawyers do is they don't run from problems. They don't run from adverse evidence. They embrace it and turn it in their direction. So I basically, um, in my closing argument, implored the jury to, to, re to, to watch it again and watch it very carefully and watch the answers this young man gave to the police questions. And I told them what problems there were with those answers, uh, that what he included and said and what he didn't say showed this young man had a problem with credibility. And I was later told by the jury foreman that they, you know, they listened to my request and did watch it again and thought about what I had said and they had problems with it. But nevertheless, that's an example, in my opinion, of where this judge was trying to throw them a life raft because I think he could see better than maybe anybody that their case had a lot of problems. When you came into the case, Mr. Mesero, at what point did you realize that the case was built on what we would call, after seeing what was presented, flimsy evidence? Well, you, I never overreact to a good day or a bad day in the courtroom. And, you know, there are times in trials where I'll very effectively cross-examine someone and then, you know, a lawyer will want to shake my hand and I don't like to do it because, you know, it's not over till it's over. And you can have good days and bad days and everything can change direction on a dime as they say here. So I never had as many good days cross-examining witnesses in any case as I had in the Michael Jackson criminal trial. It was like just everybody had problems. And, you know, the way they began the case with, with a producer who did that terrible documentary that was designed to just uh, promote scandal in Michael Jackson, they started with him and he wouldn't answer questions and he was invoking a privilege called the journalistic privilege in, in America, which allows a, uh, a journalist to not give away their sources or not give away information they got from their sources. And they started off with him just looking, you know, Mr. Bashir was his name, looking terrible. Then they switched into a witness who uh, was supposed to give very damaging information about the way their visas were being treated. And I was able to turn her into a defense witness. And I just think their whole concept of how to present this this damning, you know, story about Michael Jackson just fell apart pretty quickly. And they almost seemed to engage in overkill, calling witness after witness, hoping something would just shake out and stick on Michael Jackson. And I think, uh, you know, I don't know whether it's my strategies or my style or both or, or Providence or whatever it was, their case just started collapsing, you know, one after another. I've, I've In some interviews in the past, I said it was like bowling pins falling over. But I think they always felt, we'll get him on something. That if we just get him on one count, he's going to be a felon. He's going to be a, labeled a child molester. He's going to die in prison. They felt something, the jury would give them something. And remember, this was a very conservative community with a very high conviction rate in a courthouse where, where people were convicted left and right. Uh, the juries were notorious for uh, their conviction rate. A lot of people came from the neighboring Air Force Base, very conservative community, very pro-law enforcement, very pro-prosecution. 
And I think they thought they would squeeze something out of it, even if some of these witnesses had baggage. But I never, I didn't know, you know, I thought we were doing very well. Uh, when the prosecution rested their case, uh, I felt that if I had rested and not put on a defense case, we probably would have got a hung jury. I don't know for sure. But I wasn't confident we would get acquittals across the board. And I feared that uh, Michael Jackson would be put through a retrial if we got what is called a hung jury, meaning a jury that can't agree. I felt the judge would probably uh, make rulings or even worse uh, for the defense in a retrial. And um, I've seen some situations, you know, in Los Angeles where juries hung and then there was a retrial and the judge would change rulings and try and help the prosecution even more. And I just felt we had to sort of go for broke and try and, you know, walk him out of there. So I did, you know, there are risks associated with putting on a defense case because your witnesses are going to be subjected to cross-examination too. And most people have baggage of some kind, you know, whether it's their memory, whether it's past behavior, whatever. But I felt we had to go for broke. We had to try and walk him out of there completely. But did I, I, I thought we were doing well. Because of that, uh, I cut one or two months off the trial. There were a lot of other witnesses we were prepared to call. I decided that uh, the jury was, had, had seen enough. I thought we were in pretty good shape when it went to them, but you'd never know what a jury will do. And you may recall the jury deliberations were about eight days. I think they got the case on a Friday and came back a week from the following Monday with their, uh, their acquittals. You know, you never know who those people are. You never know what uh, chemistry exists between them in the jury room. You never really know who's going to take charge and who's going to defer. Um, it's a very uncertain process. So you never can be overconfident and you never can take things for granted. But uh, I felt we had done very well when it went to the jury and I was hoping that uh, they agreed with me. Tom, why did you think that you uh, would get a hung jury as opposed to an acquittal if you didn't put on a defense case? Well, you know, even though a lot of these witnesses were, in my opinion, effectively cross-examined, there still was that lingering feeling, you know, did he molest anyone? Um, I was just worried that uh, unless we put on Wade Robson, Brett Barnes, Macaulay Culkin, to look at the jury and say, he never touched me, this is ridiculous, you know, which is exactly what they said or words to that effect. I felt that some of the jurors might just have a very unsettled feeling about what kind of a lifestyle was he leading? Who was he? And we started our case with those young men saying what I just, just related. And um, I also had witnesses that were serious uh, witnesses to attack the credibility of the Arvizos. I mean, there was a paralegal who called me in tears one day and said, you know, Mr. Mesereau, I've worked for the law firm that represented uh, Mrs. Arvizo in their case against uh, J.C. Penney Stores. You may recall that uh, the Arvizo family had sued J.C. Penney Stores claiming that they were, um, they were assaulted and, and, and treated badly. And the case had settled for a total of approximately $152,000, which is, you know, a substantial sum. And this woman said to me, I work for the law firm that represented the Arvizos that got them the settlement. And um, 
you know, I'm a single mother and I can't lose my job, but I've had the job for years and they don't want me to get involved in this criminal case with Michael Jackson, but I can't let, you know, I can't let Michael Jackson be hurt like this. You know, that woman told me that uh, it didn't happen and threatened me if I told anybody it happened. And she said words to that effect. And she was crying on the phone. Uh, then the lawyer that she had worked for ended up a witness. Uh, the the attorney-client privilege was waived at one point, and uh, he came in and said that, you know, initially she never mentioned any sexual assault by the security guards at JCPenney, but when, when she was set down for a deposition, which are questions that are asked under oath in a law office as opposed to in a courtroom, he said he was surprised that for the first time she started mentioning that she was sexually assaulted. So I had Chris Tucker, you know, who had warned Michael Jackson about the Arvizo family, had warned him about Gavin Arvizo, who felt that they tried to take advantage of him. I had Jay Leno, who was a reluctant witness. He didn't want to help us at all. But when forced uh, through the subpoena process to show up, admitted that uh, something was strange about the conversation that he thought he had with, uh, with Gavin Arvizo. So... My feeling was that they wouldn't get 12 jurors to convict him, but some of them may have lingering concerns about how he was living his life and what really was going on, and I felt I had to address those concerns. Mm. And at what point in the trial did you really get the sense that the jury was seeing the truth in what was going on here? As I said before, I never got overconfident. I always felt we were doing a very good job of showing just not only that this case was nonsense, but that the world of Michael Jackson was different than any other world probably anyone in the courtroom was familiar with. A world where because of his enormous success, enormous talent, and his enormous um, reputation for being sensitive and kind and generous, that you, pull all, you put all of that together and he was a perpetual target of people who always wanted something, money, fame, uh, entertainment projects, uh, photographs, some type of advantage. People always seemed to have their hand out for something uh, if they were around him or had any proximity to him. Uh, and I wanted to explain that, that you know, these, these claims were all part and parcel of a, a very unique person who's uniquely vulnerable uh, to lawsuits, to to scandalous statements in the media, to all kinds of ways to get something from them. And I think we effectively did that. But we had to put on a case to really tell that story effectively. Mr. Mesro, you touched on it earlier, but how fair, in your opinion, was the wider media's portrayal of the trial? Well, you know, I don't like defending the media, but uh, I was so busy preparing for each day that I didn't watch that much of it. But what little I watched horrified me. Uh, it just, uh, it, you know, I mean, even if the media is trying to be fair, which they weren't in general, they can't quite do it because you can't take eight hours of testimony uh, and reduce it to a few sound bites and really get the truth out. And you also have to understand that, you know, a, a good lawyer is not just thinking in terms of the short term. A good lawyer is thinking in terms of the middle term and the long term. In other words, you're, you're putting a witness on or you're cross-examining a witness knowing and expecting and perhaps hoping that somewhere, you know, two weeks from now, 
something you brought out is going to resonate because of some other witness that gets called that you're going to question. And you're, you're looking towards the future. You're going to connect dots. You're going to raise points and then emphasize them in one way or another. So, you know, the media can't have any concept of this. And the media, you know, they're just trying to entertain you for that moment. So quick sound bites are, you know, not a very effective way to explain what happens in a courtroom. And jurors are under oath to, to listen and observe and weigh everything that happens in the courtroom, not just a soundbite. But I did see that Court TV was just reporting, you know, the scandalous comments that prosecutors would bring out of their witnesses on direct examination and then ignoring what would happen on cross-examination. Uh, I do recall a journalist from New York, Roger Friedman, mentioned this, that, you know, nobody's talking about the cross-examination that eviscerates a lot of these witnesses. So my general feeling was one of disgust. I had always been a fan of Court TV, one of their biggest fans. I had, you know, in my career, I used to order, you know, in those days, videotapes of examinations I saw or heard about. Could be direct examination, could be cross-examination, could be opening statement, closing argument. And I would study uh, these tapes to study what other lawyers had done effectively. I think that was a very important part of my development as a lawyer. And I had great, great respect for court TV until this particular case. They just became a cheap tabloid as far as I was concerned. They brought in Diane Diamond, who was not a lawyer, who clearly had a bias. She'd been sued by Michael Jackson in the 90s, had even gotten... District Attorney Tom Snedden to sign a sworn declaration uh, to support her position in the case. And the fact that they would make her their lead correspondent in a case like this was just a, an eye-opener for me. And I think I never, my feelings about them never totally came back. I mean, for a long time, I boycotted Court TV. I would not go near them for an interview or anything. Uh, eventually, um, as time went on, I changed my position. I, they had a couple of journalists, Beth Karras and Ricky Kleeman, who I had great respect for. I had met them in the Robert Blake case when they covered me uh, in that case. And um, I eventually decided uh, to bury the hatchet, so to speak. And uh, during the Phil Spector case, uh, I did conduct some uh, some interviews with them. But um, it, it just it's hard to explain the atmosphere that surrounded that trial. It was a, uh, you know, a, a tabloid mess. It was just uh, uh, just daily efforts to besmirch and degrade and dehumanize and mock Michael Jackson. That's what I was seeing. Uh, that's where the entertainment value seemed to be. That's where the ratings seemed to be. Now, Charles is a greater expert than I'll ever be on how the media handled that case. And i if you haven't already, I urge everyone to read his articles about what immediate disgrace it was uh, during the Michael Jackson trial. But I can only give you my tidbits because I was so busy preparing for each day that I couldn't watch most of it. And was Michael himself in a similar frame of mind throughout the whole trial? Or in your opinion, was he up and down on occasion? Or Well, one of the challenges of a criminal defense lawyer who represents a celebrity. And remember, this was the world's greatest celebrity. This was the best known celebrity in the world. One of the challenges is to navigate their way through what is called the criminal justice system, which is a very strange, unfamiliar 
uh, almost counterintuitive uh, atmosphere and process. So one of the problems was to keep Michael from being influenced by this horrible media sensationalism because he would go home and his family members would be there and they would watch some of these reports and the reports, you know, were basically uh, the defense is taking a beating. The prosecution has a strong case. The prosecution has powerful witnesses. This testimony is disturbing. You know, there were some voices I've since learned who were a little more cautious, but I think the media wanted him to go down. I think uh, to see this type of rise and fall, to see someone reach the highest, you know, heights imaginable, and then to splatter in, in disgrace, uh, which is exactly what would have happened with a conviction. Uh, I think that was the story they wanted to profit from. I think they were hoping that this would go on and on for many months, that he would be convicted, hauled off to jail. There'd be a couple of months waiting for the sentencing so each side could get their papers together and form their position on sentencing. I think they were hoping for a lot of reports from the jail as to what he was eating and what he was reading and how he looks without makeup and how he looks without uh, his normal, uh, you know, clothing. Um, I think there'd be rumors, was he going to kill himself and things like that. They were all hoping to profit from this morbid type of stuff. And uh, they, you know, I was told later on uh, by one very influential person in the music business that I had cost the, uh, the world media, you know, a billion dollars by acquitting him. So, the, you know, the, the lure of profit and ratings and spectacle was just uh, constantly present and it influenced the reporting, it influenced, you know, just everything the media did. And it was very, very discouraging, except that the jury decided to follow the law and do the right thing, despite what the media did. And I, I have to say it was a, uh, that verdict was a great moment for justice. Absolutely. Um, Tom, there were reports also at the time that Michael was spending a lot of time in his home studio away from the courtroom recording music as a therapeutic way to deal with the trial. There's actually um, lyrics. We've never heard the song, but there's lyrics that have come out that were allegedly written around the trial, and the lyrics are for a song called The Innocent Man, and they go, If I sail to Acapulco or Cancun, Mexico, there the law is waiting for me, and God knows that I'm innocent. If they won't take me in Cairo, then Lord, where will I go? I'll die a man without a country, and only God knew I was innocent now. Do you know to what extent Michael was working on music during that time as well as a way to to manage the stress of what was happening with the trial? Well, I heard he was doing that. I didn't really dig deeply into it. I was just too busy doing what I had to do, which was preparing for each day's witnesses, whether I was cross-examining their witnesses or calling our witnesses. And um, uh, I knew he was doing that. I heard it. I, I didn't really follow the music. I didn't know exactly what he was doing. Uh, I encourage him to relax and uh, in some ways escape through whatever means he could. Um, uh, and just take one day at a time. I told him, uh, you know, get up each day, and when you wake up, before you get out of bed, close your eyes and just inventory all the wonderful blessings, the wonderful experiences, the wonderful accomplishments, family, friends that uh, your life has been blessed with, and just say, dear God, just get me through today. Uh, let tomorrow will take care of itself. I suggested he start each day that way. 
So I knew he was going to the studio. I really didn't know what he was composing or creating, but I was hoping it would help him, you know, cope with the events. By the way, back to your last question, Jermaine Jackson wrote a book, uh, which I thought was very well written, uh, where he did say that, um, you know, we kept getting media reports that the trial was going badly for the defense, and then we would talk to Tom Mesereau, and he would tell us the opposite. Um, so it's, it's, you know, unfortunately, people in the entertainment business, they think what they watch on TV is the trial, uh, and that's not the trial. The trial is going on in a courtroom with 13 people, a judge and 12 jurors, who are weighing and watching everything that happens within certain rules. And it's a totally different world from the world of the media and entertainment. But to tell an entertainer that that's not the reality, that the reality is something you're not really watching uh, at night is hard. Tom, you spoke a moment ago about the ways that you told Michael to cope with the trial. How well did you think he coped with the trial? And, um, what did you observe about his deterioration during the trial? Well, imagine, you know, the Michael Jackson, you know, you know, extraordinarily sensitive, uh, extraordinarily intuitive, very creative, very humane, humane, very compassionate, a genius who sees things we don't see, who hears things we can't hear, uh, who will come up with creative concepts that we can't even imagine, you know, where they came from. So you take someone with that extraordinary sensitivity uh, and throw him into this nightmarish criminal trial where be, he's being accused of conspiring with other hoodlums to abduct children, to falsely imprison a family, to take a cancer-stricken child who at one point was thought to be dying and give him alcohol to prepare him to be molested. I mean, if you put all these accusations together, they were saying he was a monster. And you take an extraordinarily sensitive, gifted, vulnerable person like that and make him sit there five days a week for five months, not to mention the stressful buildup to the trial where the media coverage was terrible. And, and, and you know, every day he knows if, if these strangers choose to believe the prosecutors uh, and the police, you know, I'm probably going to die in a California state prison. And you, you throw in all the horrible stories about what prison life is like. So you would expect someone like that to have an enormously difficult time coping with it. Uh, any human being, even people with a thicker skin and less sensitivity than him, have a tough time. So I always assume that clients are probably, you know, going to their physicians and being uh, prescribed antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication or sleep medication. That would be something to be expected. He was always very lucid and very conversant and very articulate with me. But I did notice him losing weight. And, you know, as we all know, on verdict day, he just looked horrible. He looked like his cheeks were sunken in, that, you know, he hadn't slept for days, he looked uh, very, very haggard and very and paralyzed with fear. That's what I remember thinking about him. Um, I was hopeful. Uh, I was optimistic. Um, I thought we were going to win. But if we hadn't, I would have gone back to my office to fight another day. He would have been destroyed. He would have been immediately remanded to jail. He would have been isolated 
from everyone else. He could have been abused interminably and nobody would have known it. He could have been shipped off to some underground jail to, to await sentencing. I mean, the horrors that he could have faced uh, were horrible. I wasn't facing those horrors, even though things were stressful for me. So he did deteriorate. Uh, you would expect someone to in that position. But I think because of his extraordinarily sensitive being, his extraordinarily kind, decent ways, I think it made it harder for him to sit there day after day and be accused of, of being a monster that he couldn't even imagine being. I mean, think of this. Can you imagine Michael Jackson arranging a conspiracy of mobsters to uh, to falsely imprison <laughs> a family, to abduct children? Can you imagine him being a cold monster and wanting to give alcohol to a cancer-stricken child to prepare him and weaken his uh, his defenses so he could be molested? That's what he was being charged with. It's It's mind-boggling. But that's what he was being charged with. This is someone who was championing the cause of, of the world's children, who really saw himself as someone who could make a difference, trying to get the world to focus on children. He wanted an international children's day. He focused on children from poverty, from backgrounds of violence and deprivation. Uh, he loved to see foster children come to Neverland and have fun and, and see the zoo and the amusement rides. Can you imagine taking that kind of a being and throwing him into a courtroom where he's facing the rest of his life in prison, perhaps, because he was a gangster who did this kind of stuff. It's ridiculous. But there he was. So, yes, he did go downhill in many ways. Um, and he looked terrible the last day. Uh, Mr. Mesereau, you had an incredible team working with you on the trial. Uh, included in that team was Susan Yu. Uh, what particular part did Susan play in the, in the trial case? Well, I had uh, met Susan Yu um, a number of years before because I was a criminal lawyer subleasing space in Los Angeles from her law firm, which was a civil law firm. And I got to know her and I perceived her as a super bright, uh, very accomplished, uh, very original um, uh, lawyer who would give a fresh look at anything she examined. And I also noticed her work ethic was unbelievable. She's a, just a workaholic and just a, a fierce warrior for her clients. And I wanted her to join me in the Robert Blake case, and she was quite surprised because she didn't understand why I would want a predominantly civil lawyer uh, working with me on a homicide case. And I said, look, that's for me to decide. I know what kind of work you're going to do, and you're going to give a fresh, creative brilliant look at everything you see. You're going to be very honest about, you know, your conclusions. You're going to know the evidence backwards and forwards. So we worked together on the Blake case, and then she did the same thing in the Michael Jackson case. She organized the evidence, understood it thoroughly, uh, put a team together to organize it and prepare it. And uh, she was the only one I really trusted about my thoughts because there was so much jealousy and resentment in other quarters uh, you know, cases like this uh, are hard to manage and hard to cope with. Sometimes you think the fight's as fierce or fiercer in, within your own camp as it is fighting the other side because of the enormous uh, jealousy, resentment, uh, desire to be in the limelight. Uh, Susan didn't have any of those problems. She just did a phenomenal job uh, helping me prepare that case and helping me to me try it. And I'll always... Uh, 
you know, uh, be grateful to the tremendous sacrifice and job she did. She put together a team of paralegals who worked round the clock. And the way we did it was uh, Susan had her own duplex. I had my own duplex. Staff had their duplexes and apartments. And we had one duplex we called the war room that was two levels. And it had thousands of binders and computers. And uh, the staff had a key to my duplex. So I would go to bed uh, about 7.30, latest 8 o'clock every night. I would wake up without fail at 3. And when I woke up, I would go down to my stairwell, and I would see that the staff had been working all night to update what I call witness books. Witness books are for every witness. I want every document uh, that mentions that witness or pertains to that witness to be arranged in chronological order. And the documents can be police reports, interviews, transcripts of testimony, newspaper articles, you name it. And um, some witnesses, I'd have 30 binders, some I'd have one. And I go over and over those documents in chronological order, and they help me to just imagine how this witness thinks, how they may have changed uh, their story or embellished their story or altered it, who may have influenced them, that kind of thing. So um, it was an enormous task, and Susan Yu uh, was in charge of all of that, and she did an incredible job of organizing the evidence, understanding it, uh, helping me present it. Uh, she was invaluable. Tom, before we move on to the next question, we're just going to play a quick clip of a very iconic piece of audio. This is the moment that the verdicts were read out in the Michael Jackson trial. Giving a statement. He's scheduled to make... Here we go. Here we go, Jane. This is the audio feed from the court. Superior Court of the State of California for the County of Santa Barbara, Santa Maria Division, the people of the State of California plaintiff versus Michael Joe Jackson defendant, case number 1133603, count one verdict. We, the jury in the above entitled case, find the defendant not guilty of conspiracy as charged in count one of the indictment. Dated June 13th, 2005, four person number 80. Count two, verdict. We, the jury in the above entitled case, find the defendant not guilty of a lewd act upon a minor child as charged in count two of the indictment. Dated June 13th, 2005, four person number 80. It's just absolutely amazing listening to that audio again. I remember waking up uh, early in the morning, um, Eastern Australian time, to, to listen to the verdict. I was, I had to get up no matter what time it was, and sitting in front of the TV with my family, just just holding my breath, listening to uh, the verdict. I, I knew how long Michael had actually fought, and just watching it was absolutely incredible. So, Tom, can you please talk us through the day of the verdict, how you, how you learned that there had been a verdict, how you were able to get Michael Jackson to court so quickly, your thoughts when you saw him, uh, when he arrived, how confident you were feeling, and so on. Well, I woke up that morning with a very, very deep, intuitive feeling that something big was going to happen that day, that we were going to get a verdict. You know, we've been on pins and needles uh, each day the following week, or the, or the previous week, excuse me, just wondering what was going to happen, waiting for the juror. You know, you turn on the TV and the media is anticipating, you know, 
something, and then a question comes from the jury room, and people overreact. And you know, I never overreact to a jury question. I never read into it. I learned a long time ago. You know, don't assume it means anything. It could, it could be one person. It could be a lot of people. It, who knows what it means or what significance it has? So. I woke up that Monday thinking something's going to happen today. It was a deep intu intuition I had. Uh, and there was a f just a feeling of, of, of energy that things are going to happen. It's going to be a huge day. And lo and behold, it was. Uh, I was always confident but anxious because you just never know. I'll never forget the day. I'll never forget waking up with that anxiety sort of deep inside of me with uh, this feeling something special is about to happen. Went to lunch, got word. I'm trying to think now. Maybe it was, uh, I'm trying to think if it was late morning I heard that uh, they had reached a verdict and it was going to be taken, I think, at 1.30 in the afternoon California time. And you can imagine the, uh, the build-up to that. I mean, the... Um, you looked at a TV screen and, um, you know, the media was just everywhere trying to speculate what might happen. Uh, the buzz in the air was just uh, just hard to explain. It just was an energy and, a, and an anxiety uh, that is, that is just, uh, just difficult to describe. I called, you know, Michael and told him we have a verdict. And I called the security people and said, you've got to get him here by this time. And then, of course, you know, you may remember that motorcade driving to the courthouse and journalists speculating and media people speculating as to whether he would ever be free again. And then, of course, you know, the verdicts get read and uh, I hug Michael and I hug our team members and we come out of the courthouse triumphant and the fans are going crazy and... Uh, you know, I skipped a press conference. I felt it was really more important that I be at Neverland with uh, with Michael and his family. So uh, I didn't didn't go to the uh, the press conference. Went to Neverland. Uh, Michael was just uh, he was exhausted. He was just uh, he had trouble even walking. His children hugged me, family hugged me, and uh, he was so relieved. But battered, as I said before, I think emotionally and physically really battered by the process, but still relieved. Um, the feeling at Neverland was not a, uh, it was not a celebratory feeling. It was not like, let's party. It was just, you know, oh my God, thank God it's over. And a, a feeling of gratitude, gratitude to God, gratitude to the people who stood by him when many people deserted him, gratitude to his defense team. And then... Um, of course, I remember, I, I forgot, just driving to Neverland, uh, there was one point where a crowd surrounded, Susan Yu was driving me into Neverland, and there was a point where the crowd surrounded the car, and we couldn't move, and we had to get security to help us get through. And um, it's a very, very special day that I just I will never, ever forget. Yeah, I remember actually speaking to Kerry Anderson. We did a, a special interview with Kerry Anderson uh, a few weeks ago, and I we asked him a similar question. I asked, um, you know, was it a celebratory feeling on that verdict day, thinking, you know, it would have been, but, um, yeah, he, he echoed exactly the same thing that you are, and that was it was a, a solemn feeling. Yes. Um, and one where Michael was recovering. Yeah, you know, he uh, I visited him a few times during the trial, and he was in bed, and his children, who he was keeping away from, 
you know, the courtroom and, you know, what the process was really about. But they were children. They clearly knew something was wrong with daddy. Something was bothering him. Um, and and uh, I would be there and he would be in his bed just exhausted. He couldn't even move. Um, I think that he had bouts of just utter terror. I don't know how to explain it otherwise. That, you know, as I said before, he was a sensitive soul, not built for this process. And, um, mm. you know, the cruel hoops he was forced to go through uh, to exonerate himself uh, were just unimaginable um, for him or anybody else, really. Um, he was the most unlikely defendant in a criminal case facing charges like this, but there he was. Um, and I guess throughout our lifetimes, people will be speculating and arguing as to what series of events got him into that horrible position. Um, and I think primarily what got him into that position was that he was a, a very uniquely situated, um, because of his enormous success and popularity and enormous sensitivity, uh, he felt he was uniquely situated to be kind to others, be kind to children, focus attention on the world's children, children who are starving, children who are surrounded by violence, children who don't have families. And he felt that he was uniquely situated to make a tremendous difference. And in the process, he was not going to be deterred because he knew that he wasn't doing anything wrong. And he did not realize the extent to which the forces of evil were just surrounding him and ready to pounce. And uh, what happened, happened. Following the verdict, did Michael make it clear to you that he wanted to leave the United States so soon and head to the Middle East? Not in the least. Um, I immediately, remember I had lived in Santa Barbara County for six months. The trial was about five. I'd lived there six. I essentially had closed down my law practice uh, to handle that trial. And I got a very good feel for those prosecutors and a very good feel for the sheriffs. And, you know, when I first got into the case and met the prosecutors and met the sheriffs and went to the evidence locker to, you know, examine the evidence they had seized and planned to use in the trial, I had a very distinct feeling that they were just on top of the world. They were about to embark on the world's most covered trial. They felt there was no way they could lose it. They were feeling like movie stars and feeling no pain. And I remember... There was a second raid of Neverland, a surprise raid one time. I was in Los Angeles. Randy Jackson called me and said, Tom, you got to jump on a helicopter. I've arranged it. You know, they're raiding Neverland again. And so I flew from L.A. County to Neverland. We landed at Neverland. Um, and I remember watching some of these police officers, these sheriffs, as they were doing a second search. And, you know, some of them were like touching his his artwork and there was almost a, a a demonic sort of look on their face like we've got the great Michael Jackson under our control you know he may be the great Michael Jackson with all this wealth and fame but um, you know we control him and I had a distinct feeling that the cruelty and the abuse he could be subjected to if convicted and incarcerated uh, might have been monumental I mean I, to me it was like a death penalty case I told him to leave Neverland and not return. And he seemed a bit shocked at what I said. And then 
I started getting calls from, I got a call from Carrie, I remember one time. I got a call from Grace Rwamba. And they were asking me, do you have specific information that somebody's planning something? And I said, no, I don't need it. I said, these people have been humiliated before the whole world. They've been embarrassed before the, the entire planet. And I said, they're not going to forget it. And they've been so wounded by this embarrassing loss, a case they thought they could never lose, that I really think, you know, that based on my observations of them, that they're going to be absolutely determined to find another case. And if some child wanders through the fence or some child's parents get up there and they want to make a pitch for money, they're going to arrest him again. They're going to try him again. And I said, he can't live in peace there ever again. They have ruined it. I didn't know where he was going to go. I did not know he was going to the Middle East until he started calling our office from the Middle East. But I strongly urge that he leave and not return. I said, you know, many things in life have a time and a place. Neverland has run its course. You will not be safe there. You know, you can't go through one of these things again. And as I think many of you know, and our listeners know, um, if you read Randall Sullivan's book, um, he does report that Mr. Snedden was preparing another case, another case dealing with uh, prescription medication. Uh, and he decided to abandon it. Uh, as I recall, Mr. Sullivan says, I think Mr. Snedden decided, or at least it was reported that Mr. Snedden decided to abandon this other case when it was clear that Michael Jackson had moved away. Uh, Mr. Mesereau, when the trial ended in the acquittal, uh, where did you think Michael would be in 10 years? Did you ever imagine Michael would be long past by the time this milestone of Vindication 10 rolled around? Certainly not. I was absolutely shocked uh, that he passed away when he did. Shocked. Uh, I was hoping that he would move somewhere else, um, rehabilitate physically and emotionally. Uh, I knew that might take a long time, but the man was so gifted and so loved around the world that I felt he would come back. You know, I, I didn't know anything about propofol or 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 whether or not he was addicted to any prescription drug. I mean, he never, he was always lucid and, you know, articulate with me. And I, you know, as I said before, assumed he was probably taking some medication to cope with the trial. But the, you know, reports later on that he was addicted to prescription medication and, you know, this horrific thing that happened with propofol, I was not aware of any of this. So I assumed he would take the time to uh, rehabilitate uh, get rest, build up his confidence, and get over the nightmarish, you know, chapter of uh, this criminal case. And I thought he would come back and be the creative genius that he always was. Tom, it's not only uh, Michael who has since passed away, but also um, fairly recently Tom Snedden. Um, I wondered if you wanted to share some thoughts about Tom Snedden and what you made of him um, and how you felt about his passing. Well, look, you know, I mean, on a professional level, Snedden was always professional with me. He seemed to respect me. Uh, if he said he was calling a witness the next day, he would. Uh, if he said he didn't have a document that I thought he should have, uh, he probably didn't. I actually trusted him 
on a professional level more than I did Zonin or Auchincloss. I felt they were more prone to playing games than Snedden was. On the other hand, uh, his zeal to get Michael Jackson was irrational and cruel as far as I'm concerned. I'm told he was a very fine father. I think he had like 13 children. I'm told he was did a lot for kids in the community. Uh, I'm assuming he was a very good husband and father. And I'm assuming he did a lot of good things in his life. But his irrational zeal to get Michael Jackson to the point of absurdity, I can't forget either. Because, I mean, I remember when we were about to start the defense case, he asked me, who are your first witnesses going to be tomorrow? And I said, uh, Wade Robson, Macaulay Culkin, and Brett Barnes. And he looked dumbfounded. And I think the only other person in the courtroom was Susan Yu. There was no judge, no bailiff. And he just seemed thunderstruck. He, he leaned on the jury rail. Uh, his face was pale. Uh, his eyes looked stunned. <laughs> they looked stunned, you know, and my sense was, you know, how could he be surprised that these young men are coming in to tell the truth? But he seemed shocked. I don't, I know there had been efforts. I, I suspect there were efforts to intimidate them away. There seemed to be a lot of efforts in this trial to, in my opinion, unfairly intimidate people. If we announced a witness, the sheriffs would immediately knock on their door, a whole bunch of them. I remember there was a teacher who called me to let me know that Gavin Arvizo had told him he was not molested. So we've supplied the name and the address. And the next thing you knew, the sheriffs were trying to intimidate everyone. Uh, they even tried to intimidate, you know, the defense team because uh, the judge had a gag order. There were some reported leaks of pro-Michael Jackson information. And they announced they were investigating and a charge uh, whoever was behind it with felony obstruction of justice. So this man was playing hardball in ways you can't imagine. You know, he hired a public relations office. Uh, you know, why does the prosecution need to hire an outside public relations office to handle a criminal case? He had 70 sheriffs raid his home. I never heard of 70 sheriffs raiding anybody's home, even in a you know, case of a, a serial killer. So his obsession to to get Michael Jackson, which he always denied, by the way. You know, I can't forget. But as I say, on a professional level, he treated me well. Uh, he may have been a wonderful family man and, and father and husband. Uh, he was well-liked by a lot of his colleagues, obviously. But I think his reputation will always be tarnished by the maniacal, irrational, illogical zeal with which he continually tried to take down Michael Jackson. Mr. Mesereau, when was the last time that you spoke to Michael before he passed? I talked to him when he was in the Middle East one. We're trying to think now. No, wait a second. He was in, he was in London one time after he had left the Middle East. And uh, he did call and we did have a conversation. I believe that was the last one. I was not involved in a lot of his affairs after a certain point. And we had a falling out with Ramon Bain, who was his manager. As you know, I had some problems with her towards the end of the trial. Uh, she left town before the verdict. I had something to do with that, as did Randy Jackson. You know, ultimately, she worked for Michael, not me, but I had a lot to do with that. I was very upset with a few things that I thought she had done. 
But then when Michael went to the Middle East, uh, she reappeared. And she didn't care for me at that point. And for about nine months after Michael moved to the Middle East, uh, we did work for Michael, uh, business-related, you know, civil matters, trying to line up attorneys, uh, everything from animal contracts at Neverland to you name it. And then it became clear that uh, Ramon Bain was in charge and we were not going to be paid for the work. And uh, we decided not to, uh, not to do any more work. So I didn't see him a lot after that. If it's not too personal, Tom, could you please share where you were and what you were doing when you first heard of the news of Michael's passing in 2009? I was trying a um, criminal case in United States District Court, uh, which is a federal court in Los Angeles. You know, generally speaking, in America, you have a federal system and a state system. Each individual state has their court system, and uh, you also have a federal system. I was in federal court defending uh, a high-profile mortgage fraud case. It was a white-collar case. My client was, at one point, the highest-grossing real estate agent in the country who sold homes to Janet Jackson, Beyonce, David Beckham, uh, Barbara Streisand, Nicolas Cage, Bruce Willis, many celebrities. And he'd been indicted by a federal grand jury uh, and alleged to have been part of a uh, mortgage fraud conspiracy. So I was in the middle of a jury trial defending him. Randy Jackson's friend, Tanya Zilke, was helping me with the visuals. Um, in other words, you know, the, the computer-generated documents, presenting them to the jury, uh, that kind of thing. And I came out of the courtroom and she said, Michael has died. And I, I really didn't believe it, to be honest with you. I thought, you know, there's so many horrible rumors would pop up about Michael Jackson. I just sort of denied it to myself. And then I took the elevator down. I was carrying my bags and binders and starting to walk out of the courthouse. And two sheriffs came up to me and said, uh, did you know Michael Jackson died? I said, are you serious? And they said, uh, yes. So I went outside the courthouse, I called my office, and my message machine was full with uh, international media wanting my reaction. And then I knew, oh, my God, he did die. And I was utterly stunned. I just was shocked. I just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like a, you're in a state of shock. You're in a trance. You don't know what to think. And um, I just stood for a while and thought about... Uh, what a nice fellow he was and how misunderstood he was and how lost he could be because of all the pressure in his life from the time he was a little boy, signing contracts as a child, rehearsing till three or four in the morning as a child, uh, being denied a childhood, uh, everyone his whole life trying to get something from him. I thought about the, the enormous difficulty and sadness it was to be Michael. And then I thought what a, what a wonderful smile he had and what a wonderful, you know, what a wonderful goal he had to make the world better for all of us, uh, in particular children. And I just, a profound sense of sadness overcame me. Once the numbness sort of began to wear off, a profound sense of sadness took over, and I returned a few media calls, not very many. And uh, that's, that's what happened. Tom, one of the biggest controversies in the Michael Jackson fan world at the moment is the legitimacy of Michael's estate or not so much his estate, but the executorship of his estate. Uh, Michael 
obviously had a, uh, a different principal lawyer looking after his affairs prior to his death, namely Peter Lopez. Uh, and we don't know if Michael may have signed uh, a, a final will with Peter. We're not sure about that. The final will that was presented for the executorship of his estate, of his estate was from John Branker, who Michael allegedly didn't appreciate, according to his mother and various other sources. I would like to know what your opinion is on the legitimacy of Michael's estate uh, and its executorship. Well, first of all, I was never involved in his financial affairs other than what I needed to know to defend him in the criminal trial. In fact, you just reminded me there was a point before the criminal trial where I looked at Michael one day and I said, Michael, I want you to know something. I'm not interested in being involved in your financial affairs. I'm not interested in being involved in your entertainment world. I'm not interested in being involved in your music business. I'm only interested in winning this criminal case. That's all I care about. And he looked at me stunned like I was probably the first lawyer that ever said anything like that to him. And I wasn't even sure if he believed me because I think, you know, his life was characterized by lawyers always trying to get a bigger piece of this or a bigger piece of that. Uh, or cash in on this or cash in on that. And I told him, you know, I'm a criminal lawyer. This is who I am. Okay. I don't know anything about music. I even joked with Randy one time. I said, I can sing happy birthday. That's about it. You know, um, and they started laughing. So I, so I never interjected myself into his estate, into his will, into his financial affairs. I felt it wasn't my business. So when, when, he, when he passed away and a will surfaced, you know, I really hadn't been involved in that process. Now, a, a friend of mine, a lawyer named Dennis Hawk in Los Angeles, uh, was involved, uh, he tells me, um, in trying to put together an estate plan for Michael when he passed away. And Dennis uh, is the one that could address those issues if anyone chooses to talk to him and if he chooses to discuss it. I believe he, he made some comments in Randall Sullivan's book, Untouchable. But you have to understand, I was not involved in that process. And when the probate proceedings began, I wasn't involved in that process either. So I never interjected myself into this question of, is the will legitimate or not? Do these problems with the will, the misspellings, the fact that he apparently was in New York when it says he signed it in Los Angeles, do these rise to the level of, of, of either fraud or, or some type of um, malfeasance that could nullify the estate? I don't really know that. I don't specialize in probate. I never wanted to. Or, or the, the law, I say probate, probate court in, in America is, you know, the, uh, the legal system that involves wills and will contests and interpretation of wills and that kind of thing. That's not my specialty. So um, I've always said that uh, whether you like John Branca or don't like John Branca, that I don't know of anyone better situated to run an estate based upon his experience, uh, based upon his success, you know, with Michael and with other recording artists, uh, based upon his history with Michael Jackson. You know, his history to me seems like there were always ups and downs, uh, but nevertheless, from the point of view of pure expertise, um, I don't know anyone better situated to run this particular business than him. 
I have been quite critical of having Howard Weitzman as the lawyer in the Wade Robson litigation because he's the lawyer who signed the settlement agreement with Jordy Chandler. And I've been saying until the judge dismissed it the other day because he said it was filed too late, which I understand it's going to be appealed. I've always said, what kind of a message does it send, you know, Wade Robson's lawyer and Jimmy Safechuck's lawyer to have Howard Weitzman leading the defense when they know he settled in 93? That's kind of a terrible message to send. But nevertheless, as far as the business of the estate goes, I'm not involved in it. I'm, it's not my kind of business that I've ever run. And I never tried to interject myself into anything other than my specialty, which is defending people in criminal trials. So that's about all I can tell you. I mean, obviously, the estate is, is very profitable. Yeah, they appear to have gotten a lot of the debt taken care of. Uh, a lot of these shows they produced have been very successful. And remember, their job is to run a business, pure and simple. They are business people, no more and no less as far as I'm concerned. So that's really what I would say about the estate. As far as Peter Lopez goes, uh, I don't know if I ever met Peter Lopez. I may have met him once, but I wasn't involved with him. I don't know what happened to him. I've heard speculation in different quarters, but I really don't know, you know, what to believe. So I can only talk, you know, I only want to talk uh, definitively about things I'm, I'm really involved in or was involved in and know something about. Well, Tom, you, um, you commentated a little bit on the um, Conrad Murray trial and also on the AEG trial. When you learned of the circumstances of Michael's death, how did you feel about that, and who do you think is ultimately responsible? Well, I think Conrad Murray is a disgrace, an absolute disgrace to the medical profession and a disgrace to humanity. I mean, that's I've always felt that way. You know, the more the information came out about what propofol is and how it's supposed to be used, and, you know, what a wonderful drug it is when used properly with, you know, the heart monitoring equipment, with breathing equipment, uh, with a trained anesthesiologist monitoring the patient. You know, it's thought to be a wonder drug. Um, you know, you can undergo surgery and wake up and not feel groggy, you know, and not feel uh, disoriented um, with propofol. It's, it's described repeatedly by skilled, experienced anesthesiologists as a wonder drug, but you have to use it properly. And I never heard the name. You know, I, I had been administered it, you know, in my life, but I never even knew the name until Michael's death. And the more I learned about how it was being administered to him, apparently not just by Conrad Murray, but by others, you know, who wanted to please Michael Jackson and make him believe that they could uh, solve his sleep difficulties. And the more I learned about the, the adverse effects of this drug that you essentially you have this illusion that you've, you've been sleeping well, but you haven't really been, and your body is wasting away as you get addicted to this kind of thing. Uh, the more horrified I became that gallons of it were ordered, apparently, from a pharmacy in Las Vegas, delivered to his girlfriend's house, and I guess he was administering it in Michael's home, and not even you know with the proper equipment, not monitoring him the way he was supposed to. And then the way he just started to blame Michael Jackson for what he did was nauseating to me. I mean, he just seemed to think uh, at times that the best defense is a good offense and I'll just blame the patient. 
and that to me was uh, was just nauseating and disgusting. So I don't think too much of Conrad Murray, and I made that clear when I was commenting during his trial, and I think afterwards. You did commentate a little bit, Tom, as well on the AEG trial. Yes. Um, yes. How did you How did you feel about the outcome? Well, you know, um, I recommended the lawyer to the family. Brian Panish is, to me, the best plaintiff's trial lawyer, uh, you know, in Los Angeles for sure, and perhaps around the country. And I actually uh, was asked by Randy Jackson what I thought of him, and I told him I thought he was the best. And I was there when um, Catherine uh, met Brian Panish. I was at Janet Jackson's home with Jermaine and Randy, and Catherine came and met him, and my sense was she instantly liked him. And uh, I thought he did a tremendous job preparing that case and trying it. Uh, I was very surprised by the outcome, particularly when I learned that the jury felt that Conrad Murray was an employee of AEG, because the, the main battle, from what I could see throughout that case, was did AEG employ him or not? And uh, the jury found unanimously that AEG employed Conrad Murray. So I thought there would be some liability and some damages just based on that. But apparently, uh, and I was not allowed to attend any of the trial because I was on the witness list for the defense. I was never called. But there was a witness exclusion order, which meant I couldn't be in the courtroom. I went in for the rebuttal argument by Brian Panish, which I thought was very good. I was surprised. Although, let me say this, you know, in recent economic, the recent economic climate in, in, in much of America has been that, you know, juries, unless the, they feel the evidence is overwhelming, can be kind of stingy when it comes to making other people wealthy when they're not. So they must have, the, the plaintiffs, or excuse me, the defense must have done an effective job of dirtying up Michael Jackson. They must have. Uh, my understanding is they tried to blame, you know, his unique addictions, you know, on others and himself and argued that they, you know, they just you know, had no ability to really understand what he was doing with propofol or what what Conrad Murray was doing. And I guess they tried to establish that Conrad Murray was on the scene long before they were. And that Michael trusted his children to be treated by Conrad Murray. Um, they clearly did a masterful job. They, the defense of uh, trying to show that they just had no way of knowing any of this was going on. And the civil trials are always gambles. You know, they're, they're battles over money or property. In criminal cases, you're battling over freedom and reputation. The stakes are much higher in criminal cases in a sense. So I was surprised by the verdict. I thought something would go to, uh, to Catherine and the kids. Tom, during the aftermath of Michael's death, there was um, a huge publicity campaign, of course, for the film this is it and that was all centered on this idea that michael was extremely positive and happy and healthy and throughout the course of the conrad murray trial and the aeg trial there was this stream of emails which came out which demonstrated that there were significant concerns about his health that kenny ortega was calling for psychiatric intervention that there were emails where one of the concert promoters said um, I just slapped him and screamed at him and various other messages which seemed to be quite deeply disturbing. How did you feel when all those emails were coming out as a friend of Michael's? And also, do you think that although the, the Jackson family lost, 
that case by putting that material in the public domain has still served a vital function. Well, first of all, I loved This Is It, okay, with one caveat. Uh, there are mm -hmm. times where Michael does look very thin to me and does look like he might not be, you know, as well as he's being portrayed. And I did sense that in a couple of uh, portions of This Is It. But nevertheless, uh, I saw it many times. Uh, I loved it. It shows just what a brilliant artist he was and what a kind person he was. And, you know, movies like it doesn't, excuse me, songs like it doesn't matter if you're black or white, you know, and the social significance of a lot of things he tried to do. I, I love the movie. I could see it again and again and again. But there are some portions where I had the very intuitive, deep feeling that he may not be physically that well. So the movie, I commend the estate. I commend John Branca. I think it was a, it was a fabulous film. As far as the second part of your question, these emails that show that Michael's going through very difficult, painful times, they're heartbreaking. They're heartbreaking. You know, I have heard some stories uh, that he apparently was not well enough to to rehearse, that he was vomiting, that he had trouble uh, with some of the uh, rigors of preparing for a uh, performance like that. I had heard some stories. I never really knew what to believe, to be honest with you. In the world of Michael Jackson, you know, everybody claims they're an expert. Everybody claims they're his best friend. Everybody claims they're close to him. And, you know, 90% of it turns out to be nonsense. Um, uh, so I was hearing some stories like this, you know, third hand, because I wasn't involved. And they were disturbing. I was hoping they weren't true. When I heard about 50 concerts, I, I must say that uh, my heart sort of skipped a beat, because that just sounded utterly backbreaking. So, yes, I was disturbed by those emails. It sounds like the poor fellow was going through a very tough time. You know, uh, it sounds like his uh, his insomnia was was extreme. Uh, clearly, he was being mistreated by this physician. And I have to assume his body was wasting away in some ways because of all that propofol use. So it's a very sad, you know, ending. But I smile when I think of this is it because I just love the film. Uh, Mr. Mesereau, Michael said publicly that he felt the child molestation allegations against him were part of a larger conspiracy to take control of Michael's empire. Um, and you asked questions which alluded to this during your examinations of Anne Kite and David Legrand. Uh, do you subscribe to, to this view? Well, when you're a target like Michael Jackson was, and I repeat what I said earlier, enormously wealthy, enormously successful, enormously famous and enormously vulnerable. When you put all of those ingredients into a blender, you, uh, it, you come out with an enormous target for all kinds of chicanery, all kinds of double dealing, all kinds of, of bad behavior. He was a target his whole life because of all of this. Additionally, people are governed by not just their conscious beliefs and their conscious thoughts and conscious goals. They're governed by their subconscious beliefs and thoughts and goals, their unconscious thoughts, beliefs, and goals. And 
clearly there was a common interest among many people from a financial standpoint to see him go down, to see him jail, to see him incapable of defending himself in civil courtrooms. Do I, do I know whether or not these corporations communicated with Snedden on a conscious verbal level uh, or written level and said, let's, we all got a common interest in taking this guy down. We're all coming from different places. Let's work together. No, I've never seen any evidence of that. But is it possible that, you know, people in different places, in different occupations, you know, on, a, on an almost an unconscious or subconscious level, uh, kind of knew they were scratching each other's back and knew they had a lot to gain by seeing this uh, enormous celebrity go down. It's possible. It's possible. But I don't have evidence of a, I don't have direct evidence of a conspiracy between corporations and Snedden and the media to, to take him down uh, in any way they jointly could. I don't have, I've never seen direct evidence of that, um, but it's possible. And following everything that's happened, how important do you think your win in the courtroom with Michael was in terms of importance to his legacy? Well, I, I, I don't like to just praise myself. I'm not trying to do that, but I think it was enormous. I mean, I think that if he had been con a convicted child molester, a convicted felon, uh, sentenced to years in prison, I think that his legacy would be awful. You know, I mean, uh, people would probably still acknowledge his genius from a creative standpoint, but, you know, consider him a monster from a personal standpoint. Because I repeat, those charges were monstrous. You know, to want to abduct children, to imprison a family, to commit extortion on children, to molest children, to give cancer stricken, a cancer stricken child alcohol, to prepare them to be sexually and physically abused. These are horrific allegations. And if he had been convicted of, uh, of these charges, you know, a lot of people would say he was a monster. So to see him exonerated, I think, was extremely important uh, in terms of his legacy, uh, in terms of uh, what memories people will have of, of Michael Jackson as a sensitive, kind soul who really tried to heal the world in many positive ways. I think the acquittals were enormous when it comes to his legacy, because I shudder to think what the uh, the reverse would have been. Uh, Mr. Mesro, you've spent much of your career sticking up for underdogs, people who might not get a fair hearing because they're poor, uh, from an ethnic minority. After the trial, prosecutor Ron Zonin criticised you for allegedly abandoning your principles in the Michael Jackson case, saying that in any other circumstances, you would have been on the side of the Avisos, who were a poor Hispanic family. How do you feel about this statement? And did the Michael Jackson trial fit into your usual civil rights pro bono ethos, uh, especially since you are so keen to expunge any allegations that the case was racially motivated? Well, Ron Zonin was just full of sour grapes. He was embarrassed that they got shut out with 14 not guilty verdicts. Uh, he didn't know how to deal with the media glare. It was the first time that he'd ever faced anything like that, I'm sure. And uh, that's just sour grapes. I, I never took, you know, I never placed any importance on what he said uh, in that instance. 
The fact is I've been a criminal defense lawyer, you know, through much of my career. I've represented rich and poor, uh, a lot of poor people for sure, more than most lawyers that I know. Um, but I've not just represented poor people. I've made a living, too. And the opportunity to defend an innocent man like Michael Jackson, who was really up against it and who had enormous forces, you know, trying to take him down, that was a, a great honor for me. And, you know, was I paid well? Yes. Uh, was it against my ethics or principles? Of course not. It was perfectly consistent with my ethics and principles. You know, I mean, what was Ron Zonin trying to accomplish? Trying to have Michael Jackson labeled uh, a mobster, a gangster, a child abductor, a child molester, uh, a person with no conscience, no sensitivity, who takes a cancer-stricken child and gives him a, a potentially deadly, you know, dose of alcohol so he can molest him? I mean, what was Ron Zonin trying to accomplish? You know, answer that to yourself. I mean, no, there was nothing inconsistent with my ethics, uh, professionally or otherwise, with my defending Michael Jackson, just like I had defended Robert Blake, just like I had been on Mike Tyson's defense team when false allegations of rape surfaced. We were able to convince the um, San Bernardino County District Attorney's Office not to file charges. But there was nothing inconsistent with what I have done in my career, and I never took those comments very seriously. Tom, you have in the past um, described the Michael Jackson trial as a civil rights case. Can you explain how it is so? Well, I felt that Michael Jackson was devalued for many ways, for many reasons. I felt that his sexuality was attacked uh, in a brutally uh, unfair way. I felt that, uh, well, I don't think the prosecutors overtly and consciously went after him for his race. Uh, you have very few African-Americans in that part of California. I'll never forget that comment that Snedden made to uh, Chris Tucker when he was cross-examining him. I don't know if you recall that, but um, uh, Chris Tucker, you know, I think for the first time in the trial decided to be humorous. And you know, he was confronted with a picture of he with the Arvizos. And he made a very amusing comment. I like that picture, you know, where, you know where I can get one, something like that. And people chuckled. And Mr. Stenton looked at him and said uh, he'd get it for him if he's a good boy. There was stunned silence in the courtroom. I was hoping the media wouldn't glom onto that comment because, again, I didn't want race to be an issue in this case. Because Michael Jackson uh, brought races together. Uh, he brought everyone together. He was from a prominent black family with two white children, with a Latino child. He made a statement that he wanted to adopt children from every continent, Asia, the Middle East. I mean, he was a person who brought everybody together, tried to heal the world and heal racial and ethnic division. When Snedden made that comment, uh, there was stunned silence. And later on, I talked to some of the jurors and they told me that uh, they didn't like that comment at all. Uh, do I have any evidence that he intentionally went after him for racial reasons? No, I don't. Is it possible that they were devaluing he uh, and his family uh, partly because of their race? It's possible. But the vicious attack on his sexuality was very disturbing because I noticed as the trial went on and as Zonin, who was the best trial lawyer in the prosecution team, 
began to realize that they might be in trouble, he seemed to get more desperate in the way he attacked Michael Jackson through his questions. And he would ask questions suggesting he was homosexual, he was asexual, he was, uh, you know, Snedden and Auchincloss and Zonin repeatedly repeated this mantra, sleeps with little boys, throughout the trial. They were just trying to burn that into the jurors' consciousness and, and, and subconsciousness. And uh, I felt that he was, it was a civil rights case for many reasons, including the way they were attacking a very eccentric artist who really danced to his own drummer, uh, who dressed in his own unique way and looked at the world in his own unique way and, and really was a genius that very few of us uh, could ever dream of being. And I felt he was being devalued because of all of that. So if you look at the nature of these hideous charges, if you look at the way he was attacked, if you look at what was attacked, to me, he was not being treated in an equal way. If you look at the 70 sheriffs invading Neverland, if you look at all the experts they hired, the public relations firm they hired, this man wasn't being treated in an equal way with others. He was being treated in an unfair way, in an uh, unrighteous way. And so, yes, I think it was a civil rights suit for many reasons. Tom, do you believe the Michael Jackson trial is as misunderstood now as it was at the time by the media, or has public perception got better over time? I don't know the answer to that, because after the trial, I recall there was a poll that showed a majority of Americans thought he was guilty, but beat the system. Um, it wasn't a huge majority, I don't think. I know Charles knows statistics better than I do. Um, I can give you I can give you some now if you want. Okay, um, sure. All right, Gallup in the hours after the verdict had fifty four percent of white Americans and forty eight percent overall disagreeing with the verdict. Um, uh, the same poll found that sixty two percent of people found. Uh, Michael Jackson's celebrity status was instrumental in the verdicts. 34% said they were saddened and 24% said they were outraged. On Fox News, 37% of voters said the verdict was wrong and 25% said celebrities buy justice. And a poll by People Weekly found that 88% of readers disagreed with the jury's verdicts. Well, that, I mean, you know, shows you that... that you know, you can you can be acquitted in a celebrity trial, but your reputation can be permanently damaged by the process. Um, and what the prosecution, because they were so humiliated and embarrassed by what had happened uh, after throwing so many resources at this uh, effort to convict them, uh, you know, Zonin, Snedden, they started saying celebrity was the reason and you know, coming up with all of these justifications for why they lost. Um, the media almost seemed to run away from the trial. They were so embarrassed by the way they had covered it and what they had predicted and what happened at the end. They seemed to want to run on to the next story. I mean, Santa Maria went from this thriving media metropolis to a ghost town in two days. Uh, it was the largest, you know, amount of largest number of accredited media uh, in American history cover this trial, uh, more than O.J. Simpson and Scott Peterson combined. And within two days, this enormous, uh, you know, array of, of, of platforms, tents, 
you know, uh, booths, uh, whatever, were just gone. I mean, it was just like a ghost town, it seemed. I think they, they just collectively ran from uh, their misreporting and their embarrassing uh, reporting. So to get to your question, you know, do I think his reputation really recovered from it? Probably not because of, you know, what Charles just articulated. People just, you know, who weren't even in the courtroom just assumed he was guilty because of what the media told them and assumed he got away with it. The prosecution came out and said celebrity was a factor, blah, blah. Zonin, you know, who's a very bright guy, went around saying it was a dumb jury or words to that effect. <laughs> and then I remember, you know, there was a symposium that the Los Angeles County Bar Association gave um, I don't know, was it four years ago, five years ago, something like that. And Zona tried to say they were unintelligent jurors. And I said, well, let's look at them. We had a math teacher, mathematics teacher in high school with a master's degree in mathematics. We had a civil engineer with a degree in engineering. The foreman was a retired school teacher with a master's degree in counseling. We had the head of a local social services agency. And we had a number of military people from the neighboring military base who were very disciplined and very smart. This was hardly an unintelligent jury. But these prosecutors, because they were so humiliated, began to just come up with explanations like this uh, in their interviews. And the media collectively ran from, I think, the injustice that they created. And probably in the end, Michael Jackson didn't get the exoneration he deserved. But certainly, you know, the fact that he walked out of it without even a misdemeanor conviction must have meant something. It should mean a lot. Absolutely. And would you say, Tom, that working with Michael changed you as a person at all? Well, most definitely. I mean, the first of all, on a personal level, uh, I didn't know what to, what to expect when I first met Michael Jackson. I really had no, no expectation what he was going to be like. He turned out to be so down to earth and so nice to work with and so respectful of me throughout the process uh, that I was quite shocked that the world's greatest celebrity was so down to earth. When you find, you know, lesser celebrities who couldn't carry his briefcase, you know, can be so arrogant and narcissistic and self-satisfied and so abusive towards others. And here's the world's greatest celebrity, the, most, the, the best known person on the planet, you know, so humble and nice and kind and considerate of others. I was really surprised. Uh, certainly the entire chapter uh, changed my life in many profound ways. You know, first of all, to see this kind of protracted effort to take down an innocent person. I had seen efforts before, but nothing this enormous. And I've alluded to that and stated that throughout this, this interview, that the resources that were thrown uh, out to get him, the way witnesses were intimidated, the way they tried to intimidate the defense team, the way the media kept trying to dig up dirt on me and others. And of course, they learned that I was living like a hermit. And in lights, my lights were out at 7.30 or 8 every night. They couldn't find me in a bar or a restaurant or couldn't find me in a hotel lobby because they would have loved to just dirtied me up with the local community if they could have. The efforts that were made to make sure a conviction came out of this were so extraordinary. I had not seen that in a case before. Now, the Robert Blake case did prepare me for some of it, but nothing this large. 
So I'd seen plenty of injustice before, but but not on this scale. Um, and it, it, it clearly, to, to have gone through that and to have survived it and to have won it, um, it's had a very profound effect on my life. And to have learned that you can be the greatest celebrity on the planet and still be so kind and gentle and nice towards others was a great lesson for me. Uh, Mr. Mesro, I think this is our last question. What do you think is the best thing that us as fans can do for Michael's legacy? I think, you know, Michael was a complicated person. He was a unique person. He was a different kind of person. How can you be this kind of a genius and not be different and not be complicated and not be unique? I think you can't really respect someone unless you accept that they were human. And, you know, to me, the greatest way to remember Michael is to understand that he was a human being, that he made his mistakes, that he could be embarrassed, that he could misjudge situations sometimes. Uh, and then look at his upbringing, how horrible it, and difficult it must have been to be perceived as a genius at the age of five who could support the family and get the family out of a low-income neighborhood, who was forced to sign contracts as a child, who was forced to rehearse till three or four in the morning, who was forced to, you know, go to adult clubs, strip clubs, uh, dance clubs as a child to perform, who had this enormous pressure that he didn't even probably understand because he was a child. He may have faced jealousy with family members and others that he didn't even comprehend because he was a child. And the, that he had the character and the fortitude to break away from that as much as he could and try and heal the world in many unique ways, to me, just speaks volumes about this extraordinary human being. But remember, he was human. I wouldn't look at him as just purely godlike. I would say this was a sensitive, kind, decent misunderstood person who did everything he could to make the world a better place and succeeded at it. And that's what I have to say. Well, I think on behalf of all of us and, and all of our listeners, we'd like to say thank you so much for your honesty and candor and your time today. We truly appreciate uh, talking to you today and also for all that you've done for Michael uh, in the past and, and for basically sticking up for him in other times as well. We really appreciate that. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real honor and privilege to speak to you. And, uh, you know, it is the 10th anniversary of his exoneration and uh, exoneration it was. And uh, it was a great event, I think, uh, for me to have had the honor of being his lead counsel and to lead the charge to defend him. And I'll never forget him. And uh, I really have the greatest respect for uh, all of you and, uh, and for the fans around the world. And uh, I speak my mind. You may not all agree with everything I say, but I try to be honest. And uh, you all know what affection I have for him and what I thought of him as a person. He was, he was a wonderful, wonderful human being. Thank you very much. So there we have it, folks. We were um, very blessed there to have Tom Mesereau on the line for two hours. Um, Tom, one of the greatest uh, lawyers in America and who surely will go down as one of the all-time greatest uh, lawyers, has already been likened um, by the Los Angeles 
Daily News to Clarence Darrow. They've called him a modern-day Clarence Darrow. We're very lucky to have him on the line and to have him be so uh, forthcoming and so uh, honest with us. And um, Q, if you'd like to tell us uh, how people can stay in contact with the MJ cast. Sure. So, of course, our website is themjcast.com. We are on Facebook as slash themjcast, Twitter also slash themjcast with a username of at themjcast. We're on Instagram as themjcast. And uh, we would love to hear from you what you thought about the show on any of those avenues. Or we also love to get our emails from um, our listeners, which is the mjcast at icloud.com. We'd like to say thank you to Charles for joining us today and and in your assistance in setting this incredible interview up with Mr. Tom Mesereau. So thank you from both of us. And we hope that the listeners all celebrate Vindication Day in their way and enjoy this episode. Share it around. And thank you very much. That's a wrap. Keep Michaeling. <laughs>